Chicago has seen some terrible winter weather over the years with some of those icy storms bringing the city that works to a screeching halt. Today we're discussing Chicago's history of blizzards. I'm Tommy Henry and this is the Chicago History Podcast. There's a lot of focus when discussing winter storms in Chicago on how much snow falls. Sure, the amount of snowfall is a big factor, especially when it comes to driving, walking, and shoveling. But as many residents know, the extreme cold and wind also create hazardous conditions around town. BT dubs the term blizzard, according to Kevin Doom, cool name, a meteorologist in the Chicago office of the National Weather Service, has nothing to do with falling snow. Doom recently shared with writer Patty Wetley on WTTW.com that in order for it to be declared a blizzard event, a storm's winds must reach at least 35 miles per hour, with blowing snow causing diminished visibility of less than a quarter of a mile, and that combination must remain in effect for at least three hours. Got all that? The next time someone says, it's a blizzard outside, you can walk them through all the elements of a true blizzard event. I, however, may be a little fast and loose with the term here. Also, I had to pare down the number of snowstorms I discuss uh, to just a few, as Chicago, not surprisingly, has had quite a few of them. Here we go. One of the biggest storms in Chicago's history happened more than 100 years ago in January of 1918. Back then, America was still fighting in World War I, with more than 351,000 men from Illinois sent to defend the U.S. Fun fact, one out of every 12 men sent to fight was from Illinois, third only to New York and Pennsylvania, both of whom had larger populations. During the first few days of 1918, Chicago already had a light layer of snow about four and a half inches deep. When more flakes started to fall on January 6th, it added another 13 and a half inches. Chicago in 1918 was not ready for this much snow. Temps dropped from 25 degrees above zero Fahrenheit to just 12 above. Wind gauges downtown, partially blocked by the buildings, still registered gusts of 45 miles per hour. And at Municipal Pier, later renamed Navy Pier, winds reached 60 miles per hour. Automobiles and taxis had limited areas downtown in which to drive, and passenger service on streetcar lines had almost completely halted. Hundreds of cars had stalled along Chicago's city streets and were abandoned. One half of Chicago's streetlights were out. Passengers on trains visiting Chicago from warmer areas of the south, like New Orleans, found themselves stuck when the trains could not get through the banks of snow on the tracks. Men from south of the city were sent by the railroad to help clear tracks with shovels and plows, even loading empty freight cars with snow to be carted away from the city. Even if the crews were able to clear snow in Chicago proper, there was the fear that trains might only get a few miles outside the city before once again getting stuck in rural drifts. 
Shipping along Lake Michigan was also greatly affected. A 225-foot steamship called the Missouri, with a crew of 70 men, was stuck two miles outside Chicago Harbor, unable to get through the ice flow. The Illinois, a sister ship to the Missouri, was somewhere out on the lake, according to the news. And one ship, the Goodyear-owned Alabama, finally made it to shore after its, quote, half-frozen crew had battled for hours to bring the vessel through the ice, end quote. Telegraph lines were down and long-distance telephone communication was impossible. 300 men and 25 teams, along with six snowplows from the city's street department, had been sent out to clear the streets, but, quote, became exhausted in the blinding storm and had to quit work, end quote. And because Chicago, the city had ordered an additional 10 snowplows the previous August, which hadn't arrived. One of the biggest concerns of January 1918's winter storm was trying to get milk and fuel into the city. As many buildings relied on coal for heat, without the trains bringing that coal into Chicago, those structures, including apartments, businesses, and schools, would go cold. Of the 1.5 million quarts of milk due to arrive in the city on January 6th, only one-third arrived in time for the morning delivery. The other issue that faced the milk suppliers was that even if the milk on trains made it into the train yards, if those areas were not cleared of snow, loading the milk onto wagons would be difficult. By Tuesday, January 8th, Frank Bennett, Commissioner of Public Works, made a plea to the citizens of Chicago, grab a shovel and help dig out the city. By Bennett's estimation, it would require weeks for the city's forces to remove the snow, so he called on residents to help clear paths so that coal wagons and milk wagons could reach their destination. Quote, I hope that every citizen will see this extraordinary occasion in the proper light, said Mr. Bennett. The city is overwhelmed, and to prevent danger to life and health, it will be necessary for each man to do his share. Chicago residents stepped up. Reportedly 150 men in the Edgewater neighborhood shoveled out Farragut Avenue between Clark and Glenwood Avenue, making the roughly two blocks safe for traffic. 30 men on Ermitage Avenue between Leland and Lawrence in Lincoln Square tackled that stretch and in less than an hour made a path wide enough for two vehicles. Fortunately, loss of life during that storm was limited and Chicago was able to get back on track quickly. More than 60 years later, Chicago experienced another snowstorm of note, this time in January of 1979. Leading up to the blizzard of 79, Chicago was in the midst of its third consecutive horrible winter. 17 major storms hit the city during a three-and-a-half-month period. New Year's Eve saw between 9 and 12 inches of snow fall on the city, and the city was slow to get all that snow moved. Had officials known what was in store for them later that month, they might have put a little giddy-up in that whole process. Between January 2nd and January 12th, the city tied a record set in 1912 for 10 consecutive days of temperatures at zero or below. That does not include wind chill temperatures. And then more snow came. 
Forecasters have called for up to a whopping four inches of snow and, brace yourself, by the end of the weekend on January 14th, nearly 21 inches had fallen. O'Hare Airport was closed for 96 hours, stranding passengers all around the globe. Streets were impassable. People couldn't dig out their cars, so they took the L. Then, Mayor Michael Blandick assured Chicagoans that the L would continue to operate, but then ordered some trains to bypass certain stations, which left many riders, a large percentage of them in black neighborhoods, out in the cold without transportation. Tracks on the L froze, so commuters switched to CTA buses, which quickly became overcrowded and also had trouble getting down the snowy streets, causing super long commute times. Now, as a kid, I remember my dad going up on the roof to shovel snow off, which I always thought seemed a little dangerous. It turns out all the heavy snow of 1979 did cave in roofs, or roofs if you prefer, around the city. At a building supply warehouse in South Suburban Harvey, accumulated snow caused a 7,000-square-foot hole in the 70,000-square-foot roof, resulting in $250,000 in damages. That's a little more than a million dollars in today's money. Apartment buildings, businesses, garages, and a senior citizen's home suffered similar issues. Approximately 50 people escaped injury at the Lakeshore Racquet Club on West Fullerton when the roof and a wall there caved in. A show horse was killed and another had to be destroyed due to severe injuries sustained when the heavy snows caused the roof to collapse at a farm on Plum Grove Road in suburban Palatine. Mayor Blandick toured the city by helicopter and then ordered snowplows to clear 250 school and park district lots, the thinking being that once residents moved their cars off the streets and into those lots, the city's plows could then clear the streets. Within days, that number was reduced to 103 lots, and as many unhappy residents noted, many of those hadn't been plowed. When told Chicagoans were complaining that the lots hadn't been cleared, Blandick responded, quote, We wouldn't be advertising them if they weren't clear. End quote. Shockingly, he says with dripping sarcasm, the list was pared down again from the original 250 lots to 100 to now just 53. Only 12 of those 53 had been partially cleared. The Chicago Tribune quoted Mayor Blandick when he offered suggestions for the sick and elderly who were facing parking tickets due to the storm. Quote, If there are hardship cases, they can tell that to a judge. That's what a judge is for. End quote. Snow remained for 51 days. Garbage trucks couldn't get down alleys, so trash didn't get picked up. Five people died during that storm. A little more than a month later, Michael Blandick admitted to some snow mistakes, but tried to downplay things when he told the press, quote, When you go to school, you don't get 100% in every subject. Blandick explained that with some of these snow removal operations, the city could have received a score of 99, but in others it may have only been a score of 70. Quote, Anything between 70 and 100% is passing. Blandick shared. Not all of the city's problems caused by the blizzard of 1979 can be attributed to then-Mayor Michael Blandick, 
But a month and a half later, on February 27, 1979, Chicagoans, especially those in black communities, made their dissatisfaction with the city's inept handling of the blizzard known by voting in Balandic's mayoral challenger, which gave Chicago its first female mayor, Jane Byrne. Most listeners likely remember this storm as it had all the good nicknames. Snowpocalypse, Snowmageddon, the Groundhog Day Blizzard, and others. Late in the evening of Monday, January 31st, 2011, snow began falling in the Chicagoland area. It would continue into early Tuesday morning, and then, for the most part, it stopped. At least for a few hours. Tuesday afternoon saw more snow begin to fall, and fall, and fall. Brutal winds kicked in, reaching gusts of nearly 70 miles per hour along the lakefront. Lightning, thunder, and hail were also reported. Snowpocalypse indeed. More than 21 inches of snow fell between January 31st and February 2nd, once again crippling the city. The CTA had trouble operating, leaving commuters stuck for hours. At about 7.15 p.m. Tuesday night, five car crashes occurred between North and Belmont Avenues on Lakeshore Drive all around the same time, causing the already turtle speed traffic to stop altogether. The blinding snow and heavy winds made the ramps along the route impassable, so at 7.58 p.m. the city shut down Lakeshore Drive for good, leaving those still on the drive stuck. Lakeshore Drive, now called Jean-Baptiste Point du Sable Drive, became an auto graveyard when nearly 900 cars, buses, and even emergency vehicles became stuck for hours, forcing motorists to abandon their cars. Pictures made it look like a Hollywood movie, but it was all real. Craig Close, attempting to get home to Lincoln Square, was stuck on Lakeshore Drive for eight hours. He was quoted in the Chicago Tribune as saying, I feel like someone missed the boat on not closing down Lakeshore Drive before it became a disaster. Residents along the lakefront brought food and water to those stranded drivers, and while many in their cars called 911 for help, none came. Another stranded driver was Jim Kazmarek, who got stuck on Lakeshore Drive in the northbound lanes near Foster at about 8 p.m., when 911 was not helpful, he called 311, Chicago's non-emergency line. The woman who answered suggested he take a bus, hail a cab, or wait things out in a homeless shelter. Not the help he expected. A woman in a nearby car running low on gas got into Kazmierich's car to stay warm, and finally, at 8.30 a.m., more than 12 hours after his ordeal started, a tow truck arrived to pull Kazmierich's car out. It was terrible, Kazmierich said. I don't think there should ever be a reason for someone to be stranded from 8 p.m. until 8.30 a.m. Some Chicago firefighters used snowmobiles to reach people on Lakeshore Drive, but the rescue process was slow with limited options for those stranded. Fortunately, there were no fatalities or serious injuries on Lakeshore Drive. Then-Mayor Richard M. Daly had portions of Lakeshore Drive open the very next day, but it would take crews 34 hours to untangle the mess of vehicles along the route. 
Fortunately for many drivers forced to abandon their cars on Lakeshore Drive, in most cases the city had the vehicles towed to lots not far from where the cars were pulled from the snow, making the whole ordeal a little less stinging. Mayor Daly, then set to retire, was absent from the public eye during the snow crisis, instead having his chief of staff, Raymond Orozco, handle the press and offer apologies. According to Orozco, with the storm intensifying Tuesday, officials keeping an eye on the situation felt that the need to get people home and keep traffic moving on the surface streets was a bigger concern than the storm. Quote, It was clear thousands and thousands of motorists leaving the loop were relying on it as a major artery to get home Tuesday night, Orozco said. We did not want to eliminate that option for those motorists, further pushing that large quantity of vehicles onto arterial streets that could clog up those roads, maybe cause more accidents, or hamper emergency response. Eleven people died in northern Illinois during that snowstorm, with seven of those in Chicago, including a 60-year-old man who was walking near Diversity Harbor when he was blown into Lake Michigan. Many of the other deaths were attributed to heart attacks from people shoveling that heavy, wet snow. On a lighter note, the Wednesday, February 2, 2011 Chicago Tribune included a piece from Seth Whiteberg. Whiteberg, then a writer at Second City, has gone on to write for HBO and was co-producer of the first three seasons of Comedy Central's Drunk History, for which he received two Emmy nominations. Instead of the same old hacky responses about the weather, like, enough snow for ya, Whiteberg created a spinner with new responses you can use when talking extreme weather. I think these actually work today. Here are a few. Heavy, destructive, and bitter? Are we talking about the weather or my in-laws? This is karma paying us back for getting Lollapalooza. This might be your only chance to walk across Lake Michigan. I bet Indiana got it worse. And my favorite, the 85 Bears practiced in worse. Thanks for listening to Chicago's History of Blizzards. This episode was written, recorded, and edited by me, Tommy Henry. Check out the Chicago History Podcast Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram pages for articles and pictures related to this episode and past episodes posted throughout the week. The original art for the Chicago History Podcast used on the social media pages was created by John K. Schneider. Outstanding, John! He can be found at AngelEyesArtJKS on Instagram or via email at AngelEyesArtJKS at gmail.com. I will be back soon with more stories from Chicago's history. Until then, get out and explore when it is safe to do so, especially here in Chicago. Learn more about whatever city you live in and stay warm.